friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. I heard a story on the radio this week about a new children's book that had just come out. I've got it right here. It's called Nikki and Vera. And uh, the story they told about this children's book was so fascinating that I immediately ordered the book. I'm always on the lookout for good children's books to read to my kids. It just came last night. We haven't, we haven't read it yet, but all, be, all week long I've been pouring into this story that it tells. And it's the story of Vera Gissing. She was 10 years old in Czechoslovakia when Nazi Germany began to invade. And she's a 10-year-old girl. And so she knows that what's happening is bad, but she doesn't really have a concept of just how bad this is. At the same time, there's this British banker. His name's Nicholas, or Nicky Winton. And Nicky's about to go on a ski trip for a holiday, and he has a friend in Prague who invites him to, instead of doing that, to come over to Prague for just a short visit to help with this refugee crisis that has been created as Nazi Germany has poured into Czechoslovakia. And so he does. He cancels his ski trip plans. He goes to Prague and he sets up this little makeshift office in a hotel room in Prague, a secret makeshift office. There's spies watching all over the city to make sure nobody knows about this. And at the time, the rest of Europe, especially Britain, was taking refugees who were under 17 years old. And so Nikki, you know, facing this unimaginable evil pouring into Czechoslovakia, sets up essentially a foster care service. And parents from all over Czechoslovakia pour into his little makeshift office in this hotel room to send their kids away to foster families, mostly in Britain, but in a couple other places. And one of those young children is Vera Gissing. And so Nikki, he takes these detailed records of all the children that come through this office. And over the course of a few months, he gets almost 700 kids out of Czechoslovakia and to care in Britain and elsewhere in Europe. He places them in foster families. He begs families to take them, and he often pays for their transport out of his own pocket. Just this relentless work for months to get kids out. And in the end, he saved about 700, one of those again being Vera. Vera never knew the man that saved her. I mean, she was 10 years old when all this was worked out between her parents and this man. She never knew that man, but she was sent to safety away in Britain, and her parents and the rest of her family didn't survive. So years later, Nicky Winton, he, he meets a woman, he gets married, he never really shares much about his involvement in the war, they don't really talk about it. There's, there's kind of rumors that he had a hand in helping some kids find safety, but one day, late in life, his wife goes up into the attic and she finds this journal with all the names of the kids that he saved from Czechoslovakia, with detailed photos of who they are, names, details, where their parents lived, where they're taken to so that these kids could be reunited with their parents if their parents survived the war. She finds this journal, this thick leather-bound journal with all of these names. And so eventually the story gets out. In the BBC, you may have seen this, it's 1988. The BBC hosts a special program on, on That's Life. Some of you remember watching That's Life. And they tell the story of, of Nicky Winton. And at this point, he's an old man. And he's sitting on the front of this large studio audience. And they begin to share about the bravery of this man. 
You know, here he was just staring down in defiance, this evil empire, this man against an empire. You have him on one hand, you have Virgis on the other hand, who's just this innocent child who has no concept of the evil facing her at that time. In this program, they're telling Nikki's story, and they start featuring some of the kids that he saved and what happened, what became of those, those kids. And one of the kids they share about is Vera Gissing. And she grows into a wonderful mother, a grandmother even. And, and the host of the show on That's Life, she says, now Vera Gissing's here in the audience with us this morning. And she says, Vera, I should tell you, you're actually sitting next to Nikki Winton. And she beams. She just goes, she's never met this man. And she turns to him and instantly they're both sobbing. And she reaches out and she takes his hand in hers and she reaches over and she kisses him on the cheek and she just embraces him and begins whispering into his ear, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a story, right? And I'm struck by that this author of Nikki and Vera, this children's book, felt like that was a story kids needed to hear. You know, right, and the book doesn't go into the details of the horror of the Holocaust, although it doesn't shy from it, but it's like he knows something, that, they're, that it's important that, that even our children have a grasp on the reality of our world. The fact that there is unimaginable evil out there. And in light of that evil, what we truly need most as people And I think that story helps us to enter the the text today. So we're in Mark 3. I want you to have that story in your mind. We'll come back to it later in the the sermon. This is Mark 3, starting in verse 20. We're going to spend a few weeks in this passage. There's a lot here. I'm not going to unpack it all, but hopefully over the next few weeks I will. Let's start in Mark 3, chapter 20, as we continue our series on the good news of Jesus. Jesus entered a house. A crowd gathered again so that it was impossible for him and his followers even to eat. And when his family heard what was happening, they came to take control of him. They were saying, he's out of his mind. We're going to come back to his family in a couple weeks. The legal experts came down from Jerusalem. Over and over they charged. He's possessed by Beelzebub. He throws out demons with the authority of the ruler of demons. And when Jesus called them together, he spoke to them in a parable. He said, how could Satan throw Satan out? A kingdom involved in civil war will collapse. And a house torn apart by divisions will collapse. If Satan rebels against himself and is divided, he can't endure. He's done for. Listen to this. No one gets into the house of a strong person and steals anything without first tying up the strong person. Only then can the house be burglarized. I assure you that human beings will be forgiven for everything, for all the sins and insults of every kind. But whoever insults the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. We're going to talk about that next week. This person is guilty of a sin with consequences that last forever. And he said this because the legal experts were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Jesus here in this passage, in this this strange interaction, I think he's pulling back the curtain. He's lifting the veil, and we get to see what the world is really like. It's it's kind of a similar thing that's happening in this children's book, but to a greater degree. He's pulling back the veil because he wants to to see the world as it really is. And so let's let's see if, if we can see the world like Jesus sees the world. 
But let's back up first. Let's kind of set this story up. What's going on here? Well, you have these legal experts. These are people who are religious people. They know their Bibles really well, and they are really troubled by the way that Jesus has been acting up until this point. He's getting wildly popular. He's kind of ruining their influence. He's challenging some of the norms of the way that they practice their faith. So they dislike this guy, and what they decide at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 6, is that they're going to destroy him. They're going to destroy him. So here's the thing. They've got this problem, Jesus. They want him destroyed, but they don't have a plan. They don't know how to do it. So what do you do when you have a problem and you don't have a plan? You get together and you start talking about it. You can imagine them, they're in this dark room, and they're talking about Jesus, who they want to destroy, and they say, how can we get him? How can we get him? And they begin to think about everything that Jesus has done that the people have seen him do. And what they realize, and if you go through the first three chapters of Mark, you're going to see this over and over again, is that Jesus continues to do miraculous things. So Jesus obviously has some kind of power, okay? So what they know is if they're going to get him, it's going to have to be based on something that the people have seen. The people have seen him demonstrate all kinds of power, all kinds of authority, all kinds of miracles. So they say, this is how we're going to get him. If he has that kind of power, he has it from one of two places. Either it's from God or it's from Satan. So let's say it's from Satan. What they do, and it seems kind of unplanned or not planned out, but what they do is consistent with what people have done for centuries, for millennia. And that is that if there's somebody threatening to you and you can accuse them of being a witch, everybody will want to destroy him. I mean, think about uh, early America, Puritan America. You remember the Salem witch trials and the crucible? How many of you read the crucible in high school, right? Yeah, you read the crucible. What's it about? It's about these women who are accused of being in league with Satan. And as soon as that accusation lands on somebody, everybody else wants them destroyed. This, this fear just rises up in people. It just overcomes them. They can't imagine that somebody would give themselves to Satan like that, and everybody wants them destroyed when that charge is leveled at somebody. And we think that happened just a long time ago, but that still happens in places today like Papua New Guinea, where we have missionaries, where if a woman, and it's often a woman, is accused of sorcery, of witchcraft, she might be killed. So this, this accusation against Jesus, you know, when we hear this, it kind of seems outlandish to us. We're like, man, they accuse him of being a witch? Like, you got you to come up with something better than that. But you, the thing is, the accusation actually sticks with Jesus. So there's a, a Jewish book. It's kind of a companion book to the Jewish scripture. It's called the Talmud. And in the Talmud, we find this. Listen to this. Yeshu of Nazareth, so Jesus was hanged on the day of preparation for the, uh, for the Passover. He was hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover. Why? Because he practiced sorcery and he led the people astray. The accusation sticks with Jesus. Okay, now we would never accuse somebody of that. You know, modern day America. We would never accuse somebody of being a witch, of being on Satan's team. Not just because it like, feels ugly and not nice, not politically correct, but, but really the reason we wouldn't call somebody that is because it wouldn't stick. You know, we don't live in a world where we believe that there are unseen powers affecting our lives. 
you know, if you're watching a show like David Copperfield or something on TV, you see this magician doing tricks. Your first thought isn't, you know, I bet he sold his soul to Satan. Your first thought is to get on Google and say, how did he do that? And usually you can figure out how the trick works on Google, right? We don't believe that we live in a world with that kind of sinister, demonic, evil power out there, but it's an accusation that sticks with Jesus because they do believe it. And here's the thing. Jesus believes it too. Jesus does not disagree with them about their view of the spiritual world. Look again, okay? He doesn't say, if you look in this passage, Satan, that's the best you guys got? You're going to accuse me of being in league with Satan? What are you, a bunch of kids? Like the boogeyman's out there? Satan's not real. I can't be on Satan's team because he's not real. That is not what Jesus says. Look what he says. How can Satan throw Satan out? A kingdom involved in civil war will collapse. A house torn apart by division will collapse. If Satan rebels against himself and is divided, then he cannot endure. He's done for. Okay. Jesus does not deny the power of Satan. What he denies is, if this is Satan's game plan, he's going to lose pretty quickly. Uh, so, so if you have your Bible and you want to flip back over to Mark chapter 1, let me just show you what we're talking about. <clears throat> When Jesus says that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand, talking about Satan, or a kingdom torn apart won't stand, what he means is if this is Satan's plan to plant an enemy agent on the other team, then it would become problematic if that enemy agent is always working against Satan. You know, you can imagine a football game. So, <clears throat> You want to win this football game, so you send a kid over to this other school. He enrolls in that school, and he's on the football team. And when he's out on the field, he just kind of, he just lollygags around and stuff so your team can get by him. You always throw to his side, stuff like that. Okay. Now, if that kid was tackling your team every time, if he was intercepting the ball and running it back every time, um, if he was playing offense and he was going for touchdowns every time they had the ball, you would begin to say, this plan's not working. Right? It doesn't hold up. Okay, so look back in Mark chapter 1. The first thing that happens to Jesus after he's baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, what happens? Verse 12, he's sent out into the wilderness where he fights with Satan. He comes back into town. The first time he walks into town into Capernaum, what does he do? He encounters this demon, and the demon says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Okay, we go on, we get over to chapter 3. Oh, actually, in chapter 1, starting verse 32, he's casting out more demons. His ministry is in direct conflict, conflict with these powers of evil. And then you get over to chapter 3, you pick up in verse 11, when the evil spirits saw him, they fell down at his feet and they shouted, You are God's son! But he strictly ordered them not to reveal who he was. What's Jesus showing us here? What's Mark showing us? Okay, everything Jesus does is in conflict with the powers that these people accuse him of being in league with. So what he's telling them is, what you're saying, that I'm on Satan's team, it doesn't make any sense because I keep fighting against him. Everything I'm doing is hurting his team. This does not hold up. It doesn't make sense. But he does not say Satan's not real. 
Uh, if you go to John chapter 12, verse 31, we see another scene in which Jesus pulls back the veil on this world. And he does not say, hey, there's nothing for you to worry about out there. It's all good. It's all, it's all fine. What he does is he pulls back the veil and he says, the world's ruler, talking about Satan, is at work. The world's ruler, he says. You know, in this passage where Jesus is accused of being on Satan's team, he says, no, 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 that's illogical. I'm not on Satan's team. He still wants us to see that there is evil powers out there. There are evil powers up against us. He pulls back the curtain and he shows that to us. All right, here's the problem. It's hard for us to see that. Paul says it like this. Why is that so hard for us to see? Look at what Paul says. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to what he says. The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't have faith so that they couldn't see the light of the gospel that reveals Christ's glory. Christ is the image of God. Think about that for a second. He's saying we don't realize how significant, how powerful the enemy is that we're up against. The God of this age, the ruler of this world. We don't realize that our lives are in bondage to a power like that because that power doesn't want us to see it. That one of the ways Satan works is that he blinds us to his reality. And the effect of that is If you don't realize how bad the enemy is, if you don't realize the bondage that you're in, the liberation that Jesus offers, the intervention that Jesus offers, the freedom that Jesus offers does not taste sweet to us. You know, it's not something we delight in. It's not something we desire because we don't realize how bad we have it. And Paul says the reason you don't realize how bad off you are is because the God of the age has blinded us to that. You know, the God of this age is winning if we don't believe that he's at work in the world. Um, You know, I do this prison Bible study, or I did before the pandemic with Hope Works. I've talked about it a number of times. And there's this, this, this really odd phenomenon in the prison Bible study where you have about 40 guys in this room studying with Hope Works, studying how to get their lives on track, and also studying the gospel of Jesus Christ together. And there is a window in the classroom that we meet in. And so all, all day long during class, other guys from prison are walking by this window. And every time they walk by, they mock and make faces at the guys who are in the room. And so, you know, just think about it. You, you know, you've got a couple thousand people probably incarcerated at Shelby County Corrections, guys. And you have 30 to 40 at any given time who actually realize the bondage they're in and want to get out of it. And everybody else walking by by is mocking those guys who are trying to better themselves, trying to get out of this broken, flawed system to which they are in bondage. All those guys walk by and they mock them. And I want to step out in the hall and shake those guys, not only because they keep disrupting my class, but it's like nothing is funny about being in jail. Like, do you not realize where you are? Like, don't you want to get out of here? Man, that's how Satan works. You know, he binds us. He blinds us, sorry, to the bondage that we're in. 
And we just come to believe that the life we're living with, all of its problems, all of its addictions, all of its turmoil, that that's just how life is. It's not that bad. Pretty much everybody's living like that. And like Satan is winning if that's the case. If you don't believe that what you're up against is not just behavior management issues, it's spiritual bondage. Spiritual bondage. Okay. And that's why I love what Jesus says next. Look again at verse 27 here. No one gets into the house of a strong person and steals anything without first tying up the strong person. Only then can the house be burglarized. This is a a metaphor here. What you have here in this this little line are a, a couple of players. You have this vision of a house. And the house is ruled, it's owned by a strong person or a strong man. And in the house are all of these possessions which the strong man believes are his. And Jesus says that if you want to get those possessions out of the house, you got to break in and tie up the strong man, and then you can take what you want. What's really cool about this little story is that this is not typically the way we think about Jesus as robber. (laughs) Jesus as thief. And yet when Jesus talks about himself like this, he's just, he's, he's hearkening back to language that God uses about himself. This is in Isaiah. So this is when God's people are in uh, Babylonian exile. And listen to what God says about himself and about Babylon. He says, can loot be taken from warriors? Can a tyrant's captives escape? The Lord says, even the captives of warriors will be taken and the tyrant's loot will escape. I myself will oppose those who oppose you. I myself will save your children so that all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and the Mighty One, Jacob, is your Redeemer. Isn't that awesome? God is robber. Isn't that cool? You know, what Jesus is doing here, he's tapping into that vision. And he's saying like, yeah, the world is not all hunky-dory. It's not all fine out there. In fact, there are souls in bondage to a strong man. But I've come to tie him up because I'm stronger. You remember what John the Baptist says about Jesus in chapter 1, verse 7? That Jesus is stronger. You remember that? Here we have this strong man, the ruler of this world, the God of this age, the Bible tells us. And what we see about Jesus is that he's stronger. And Jesus describes his mission on behalf of God to this world as a mission of robbery and theft. He comes to tie up the strong man so that he can save all those who don't belong to him. He can save all those who belong rightfully to God. He is pillaging the house of the strong man. That is the mission of Jesus, he says. You know, here's the good news. Here's the good news. The good news is, is the good news is not that you can live your best life now. The good news is not that you can be happy in this world or even that you will go to heaven when you die. Those are all sweet um, benefits of the good news of Jesus Christ, but they are not the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that you are a slave and now you're free. You were a prisoner. And you have been liberated. You've been set free. You know, the good news of Jesus Christ, of those who give themselves to Jesus Christ, is that sin and evil no longer have the hold on them. 
they did before. And it's because the decisive battle has been won at the cross. There is a final battle coming when Satan will be defeated once and for all, but the decisive battle has been taken place. The strong man has been tied up and Jesus is looting the world for souls that actually belong to him. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. There's this, you go back to that story of Nikki and Vera, that BBC uh, broadcast. Some of you have seen this broadcast. They introduce Vera to Nikki down here on the front row, and they're embracing and holding each other. And then, you know, Nikki's just this, this old gentleman sitting in the front of the studio audience. He doesn't know anybody around him. And she says, Vera, you know, Nikki's right here. They embrace each other. And then she says, if there's anybody else in the audience who owes their life to this man, Nikki Winton, would, would you stand? And the whole audience rises up. You know, the BBC had gone and found all of these children now grown that he had saved from this list. And the whole audience rises up. And Nicky just turns, tears pouring down his face. And here's all the children that he saved celebrating him. And I thought, that's church. The people who come together because we know we've been saved. The people who know how bad they would have had it were it not for Jesus Christ.